Well, greetings in the Master's name. Thinking about difficult times and and uh, then uh, this hurricane that's just about to Louisiana now, possibly the most powerful one to hit there since 1850. Um, so during these difficult times, in a perfect world, such things wouldn't happen. I don't think things happened in the world during the time of the Garden of Eden. But, but I was thinking about these verses in our Sunday school lesson. He said, Remembering mine affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall, my soul hath them still in remembrance and is humble in me. These difficult times show a person how helpless they really are. And through that, sometimes people turn to God. They look to God. So that's what God, I think, can do through these difficult times. And we've experienced that I'm sure many of you have experienced that too in a personal way. The difficult times in your life tend to have you look more to God than when everything is going just so smooth. And then, uh, something else I wanted to share this morning um, doesn't have to do with Hebrews chapter 1, but I was just thinking about it. Um, I think I think maybe you got these in your mailboxes. The Mennonite Air Missions newsletter. But the last one had this note, note in the, the uh, on the front page. It was about a baptism. It said, The 4th of July, 2021, was a very special day in Mexicaloja, Guatemala. Seven souls were joined to the body of Christ in baptism. And it went on to say, Many stories could be told about those baptized and how they came to Christ. About a year and a half ago, the church had a special prayer meeting in the home of a young lady suffering greatly from physical and spiritual afflictions. The church prayed, God worked, and the powers of darkness were broken. Through that dramatic deliverance, the young lady and her parents became Christians. God continued to work in their family, delivering her brother from alcohol addiction sometime later. The young lady still suffers from some physical health problems, but her spirit is whole. The father is nearly deaf and cannot read, but he enthusiastically testifies of the power and presence of God in his life. The mother, likewise, glows with an inner peace. But, you see, it said... A year and a half ago, the church had a special prayer meeting in the home of the young lady. The church prayed, God worked, and the powers of darkness were broken. I like to see more of that in our settings. The Bible talks about those that have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. And I don't think that we deny the power of God. We, we uh, believe in the power of God. We appreciate the power of God. But I'm wondering if there's a lack in utilizing the power of God. Uh, we don't use God. He, we're his servants. He uses us. 
but to avail ourselves or apply the power of God. Uh, I think there's a lot yet we've got to learn along those lines. Now, getting closer to Hebrews chapter 1, um, in Hebrews, it, it's about Christ. And let's see what to say in chapter 12. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finish of our faith. Uh, I think the beginning of chapter 3 talks about gazing on Christ in the original gazing. Um, and so thinking about that, and I got these books. We would see Jesus. And so I put a copy of each of this in each of your mailboxes. We would see Jesus, looking unto Jesus. Okay, I'd like to read chapter 1, Hebrews again. This time I'll read from the uh, New King James. It's not much different, but just a few words are different. Hebrews chapter 1. God who at various times and in various ways spake in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire, but to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will fold them up, and they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Set at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? So it's lifting up Christ, showing how he's superior to the angels there. A lot of that, a lot of that uh, first chapter. But this, for a while this morning, I'd like to focus on this, on this phrase in verse 3 where it says, When he had by himself purged our sins. And I've been thinking about that a good bit because recently someone was asking me about purgatory and uh, what, what we believe about purgatory. And uh, so I was thinking about that and I was I looked up where the basis of purgatory might be as far as scripture and there's verses in Corinthians that talk about uh, thing, works being burned up and so on and there's another verse. I was thinking about it in the concept of the whole idea of salvation, what it's all about. 
And so it says, purged our sins. So what's encompassed in that? What's involved? Okay, first of all, think about sins. Sins. Uh, we're, we're created in the image of God. So in Genesis 1, when God created everything and created the animals, and then he created man in his image. He breathed into him the nostrils of breath of life, and man became a living soul. But being created in the image of God is um, it's powerful. Man has the capacity to reason. He has a, he has a spirit. He has a consciousness. He has an awareness. He can, he can consciously fellowship with God. God is a spirit. Man is a spirit. We have this awareness of, of God. And we can communicate with him. We have tremendous capacities. We are capable of personal fellowship with God, and that's God with a capital G. When Paul was preaching to the ones there at Athens, you know, it's, I forget what the um, history says, it, but they had, they had idols to hundreds of gods. And Paul saw this reference to the unknown God, and he said, that's the one I want to tell you about. He said, this is the God that created heaven and earth. And he went on to talk about that God. And that's the God, the almighty, sovereign, creator and control of the universe that we can have personal fellowship with. But as creatures of choice and with the intellectual capacity that we were created with, that ability to reason, man... thought that he knew better than God than what God had said. He had a little encouragement from Satan to think that way. And so in the process, he became a rebel. And so we all come into the world with a selfish nature, with a rebellious nature, with a tendency to sin. And so Hebrews starts out, God has spoken. And what did Satan say? Satan said, hath God said. And so God has spoken. We, it's, it's objective. We can read it. And Satan, over and over, did God really mean that? There's this little book recently, I think from CAM. What if Jesus really meant what he said? What if this book really means what it says? Because Satan says, 
hath God said? And so, as a rebel, with our fallen nature, okay, we're all sinners. We're all sinners. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And God is holy. He's infinitely holy. And sin can't come into his presence. Sin breaks fellowship with the holy God. It breaks communication. So we're estranged from God. We're separated. There's a barrier. There's a gulf. Sin. And we're all infected. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, There's not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. 1 John 1.8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Isaiah 64.6, we are all as an unclean thing and all our righteousness are as filthy rags and we do all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And so we have this question in Job, how then can man be justified with God? Or how can he be clean that is born of a woman? That is the question. And man tries, and man senses that. And he tries, he tries. Uh, in this book, believe it or not, there's, there's a lot of incident, very unusual things, but this, this just for you written many years ago was based on something I think in this book. Uh, but it uh, it's it's uh, it was a true it's a true account. The man of chains was a usual sight on the streets of Lahore, India, for many years. This Indian beggar, known as Sankawala, wore nothing but chains, iron chains draped draped over his body. At his death, the strange garb weighed six hundred and seventy pounds. And it says this true story comes from this little book, Ripley's Believe It or Not. Sankowala had been very wicked in his youth. One day he decided to give up his wickedness. He began wearing a heavy chain to remind him to keep from sin. But still he sinned, so he added another link to the chain, then another and another. All his life Sankowala kept adding links to his chain suit, and still he could never achieve peace of mind. He bore his inhuman burden 13 years before he died. Ridiculous, you say. Yet the case of Sankawala is familiar to every one of us. His chain garment merely symbolized the heavier anguish of his guilty soul. All of us understand that galling weight within. Perhaps you have become a slave by adding sin to sin. At this moment, your soul may be crying out from hopeless exhaustion. You became a slave by trying to run your own life. But your efforts to find happiness ended in bitterness and added guilt to guilt. Like the Indian beggar, you are a slave to a pathetic chain you have forged in a warped search for freedom. It may well seem to you that every change you make only leads you deeper into misery. But there is one change you can make that is different. You can change masters. 
Another example in this book, and again, it was uh, from India, the Hindu setting. Seeking atonement for having refused to feed a holy man, uh, this man's name, Chris Narsi, cooked meals for the poor for 20 years on a charcoal brazier balanced on his bare chest to try to atone for that sin. And so in Hebrews it said he had by himself purged our sins. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Hebrews 9.26 But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And the, uh, the uh, wording there in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 when it says by himself purged our sins I wanted to see what other translations said this book I think I think Mark just recently found one in the trash uh, there where he works but uh, the New Testament from 26 translations and so just uh, what it does it picks out phrases from various translations uh, for uh, the, the phrases of a verse so here it had when he had made purification of sins when he had effected our cleansing from sin when he had brought about the purgation of sins having given himself as an offering making clean from sins uh, the Amplified says accomplished our cleansing of sins and riddance of guilt so purged our sins that's Jesus did by himself it says by himself purged our sins and that stood out to me too because in thinking about purgatory you know it's like after you die you go to purgatory to get um, a little, do a little more suffering to make you ready for heaven. Romans 3.20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, of course, that's kind of talking about our, before we die, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. See, the law isn't the solution to sin, it's the knowledge of sin. Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. And probably most of us can quote Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace are ye saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For 2 Timothy 1, 9, who has saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. So now just backing up a little bit. God hath spoken. 
And there's these absolute laws in the universe, spiritual laws, just as certain as the law of gravity or centrifugal force. You go around the curve too fast, you're going to have problems. Um, but God's laws, Galatians 6, 7, be not deceived. God is not mocked for whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. That's a, that's a law. Hebrews 9, 27 is appointed to man once to die, but after this, the judgment. Ezekiel 18, 20, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Absolute. So what's the answer? Well, here again, Romans 5, 8, but God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4, 9, and this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. 1 Peter 3, 18, for Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. So it's God's doing. And man has no part in it. I mean, we just along for the ride. When John the Baptist started preaching in the wilderness of Judea, he said, Repent ye, for the kingdom of God is at hand. When Jesus began to preach, he said, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. When he sent out the twelve in Mark 6, 12, they went out and preached that men should repent. In Acts 3, 18, Peter said, God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ should suffer. He has so fulfilled. Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Now the gospel in a nutshell. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life that whosoever believeth in him. So, that's not so hard, is it? And that's what we're supposed to do. Hmm? Believe. In fact, the Jews asked Jesus what they could do for salvation. I don't have those exact words. I think it's in John 6, maybe. And Jesus said, this is the work of God Notice, he said, this is the work of God that ye believe. I should turn to that, see if that's right in John 6. I'm not sure that's the right chapter. Yes, John 6, 28. Then said they unto him, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, this is the work of God that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. Very interesting. But the, 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 um, what's involved in that belief is maybe more than what is often presented in American theology, at least. It's, it's a complete trust and abandonment to Christ. And so the two sides of the coin, you know, believe, 
trust, and obey. If you trust someone, you believe in them, you're going to follow them, you're going to obey them. So that's part of that. John 3, 36 says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. So that thing of, of, of believing and, and abandoning ourselves to Jesus Christ. Uh, okay, so John 3, 16 is, is the gospel in a nutshell. Two verses later, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. That light is coming to the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So they, they refuse. They refuse to, to believe, accept. So what do we do? Well, we repent. We choose to renounce sin. We, we agree with God to the extent that we act on it. Is there anything else we can do? I mean, it seems kind of freeloading just to let God do it all, doesn't it? Uh, isn't, isn't there something that we can do to make ourselves more holy? I mean, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.27, he said, But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. And it was interesting. I, I wanted to see what, what that also was in... Um, and some other translations. And so, uh, let's see, that's 1 Corinthians 9.27. And this was interesting. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. They just had two other translations they quoted here, Williams and Weymouth. But I keep on beating and bruising my body and making it my slave. I bruise my body and make it my slave. So this whole idea of what we can do to help the process along, I was looking up the uh, ideas about asceticism. And uh, you maybe have heard about this sort of thing, but the uh, the stylites, I think they called them. Uh, that was what the stylite was a, a a word I don't know is in the Greek or what for a pillar. And so these people lived on top of a pillar. I think the first one was in the 400s. A very famous fellow, um, Simon. Let's see what did it say about him. Um, well, anyway. A pillar saint is a type of Christian ascetic who lives on pillars, preaching, fasting, and praying. Stylites believe that the mortification of their bodies would help ensure the salvation of their souls. The first known stylite was Simon Stylites the Elder, who climbed the pillar in Syria in 423 and remained there until his death 37 years later. Can you imagine living on top of a pillar? Some of them were... Oh, I don't know, 50, 60 feet in there with a little platform on top. Living there for 37 years through the heat of summer, through the cold of winter, because it's to, uh, it's to the mortification of their bodies would help ensure the salvation of their souls.
Well, some more of the ascetics, and a lot of these were sort of Middle Ages around the years 10,000 to 1,200, 1,200 to 1,200. One of them said, we must inflict our body with all kinds of adversity if we want to deliver it to the perfect purity of soul. Uh, St. Francis of Assisi, and there was a lot of things I admire about him. But he said, I have no greater enemy than my body. We should feel hatred towards our body for its vices and sinning. And uh, these ascetics talked about... Um, Fasting and self-flagellation for the disciplining of the body, which they called Brother Donkey. This metaphor, beloved by the ascetics, expresses the idea of the body as a beast of burden that should, weighed, that should be weighed down by hard work, often scourged with the whip and nourished with poor fodder. Another um, one along about 1200 A.D., Three times every night he would whip himself with an iron chain, once for himself, once for the sinners in the world, and one for the sinners who are suffering in purgatory. And another, along about the same time, chastised himself with an iron girdle that inflamed the skin. In this, he wrote, In this way I have afflicted my flesh heartily, and through this affliction have I won a reward which is not small. So I was thinking about that in relation to this question, you know, what do we believe about purgatory? And, uh, and then, um, well, what about suffering? I mean, the Bible says if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. That's 2 Timothy 2.12. 1 Peter 4.13, But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. And Paul wrote in Philippians 3.10, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. So, fellowship of his sufferings, and so that's where the flagellants are coming from, the that, you know, they whip themselves. You know, we need to participate in the fellowship of his suffering. But it's not suffering in purgatory. In Acts 5.40, And to him they agreed, the Sanhedrin, and when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Jesus said in John 16, 33, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. John 15, 19, if you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. And of course, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 10 to 12, about 
Rejoice when you're persecuted. So do we suffer? See, this whole question about what do we believe about purgatory? And it's, it's a good exercise in a way to, to relate to other people. I, I remember reading many years ago about, about um, Dave Wilkerson. Dave Wilkerson's uh, ministry there in New York to, well, all kinds of uh, people and situations. And said, like, you know, if a, a young person would respond to the gospel and, well, I don't know, you know, whether they were drug addicts or what all their situations were, but they would come into, I forget what that their ministry was called, but they'd just have them saturated reading the word and they'd put them out on the street right away. As soon as they got converted, put them out on the street and, you know, you run into a Buddhist and he asks you a question. So you come back and you search it out in the scripture and you go out in the street next week and you run into somebody else with a different uh, perspective or question. You come back and you search it out in the scripture. So when people challenge you with things, it's good to go to the scripture and see what it means. So do we suffer? Well, gee, the Bible says we're going to suffer. But where and how? Do we suffer to make amends for our sin? And no way, because only Christ can do that. Is there benefit in suffering? The Bible says there is. We glory in tribulations because the tribulation worketh patience. 2 Corinthians 4.17 For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And that's speaking of life on this side of the grave. So suffering refines us. It doesn't atone for our sin. It does not count towards the sentence of sin. God's sentence on sin. Our, we cannot... We cannot do anything to atone for our sin. We can accept what Jesus did. If we accept him as Lord and Master, and see that, that's that's the rub too. In fact, I was thinking about these ascetics and all the things they did, and I, I wouldn't say that they... Uh, well, I'll just put it this way. I would expect probably to see some of them in heaven. But I think they had... Uh, an inferior understanding about some things, okay? Um, is it easier? Is it easier to live on a pole for 37 years than it is to deny yourself? If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. I would, I would venture to say, I know it's, in a way it's kind of theoretical, but it's, it's easier to live on top of a pole for 37 years than it is to deny yourself every day. 
It's easier to whip yourself three times at night with an iron chain than it is to deny yourself every day. That's the rub. People will do all kinds of stuff before they'll give up themselves, before they'll deny themselves. Get yourself off the throne because see, we're born with that selfish nature. And to get that off the throne and get Christ on the throne is the rub and the challenge. Galatians 2.16 Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, so no flesh be justified. And so when when I was asked about purgatory and what do we believe about purgatory, and I got to thinking about it and thinking about what the scripture says, it's not so much how do I explain 1 Corinthians 3 where it talks about your works being burned or the other verse, whatever they use for purgatory. It's not so much about whether or not I can come up with a different explanation for those verses. It's the whole plan of salvation. It, 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 it infringes on the whole plan of salvation to say that after I die, I've got to go somewhere and suffer so I can get good enough to go to heaven. It, 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 yeah, it, it, it infringes on the work of Christ. So, 2 Corinthians 9.15 Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift.